This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. This week on the Composer Chronicles, we have a very unique episode. Today, I am excited to introduce you to conductor Kevin Fitzgerald. Normally, I would do historical episodes on my own, but I could not pass up the opportunity to talk to Kevin about one of his greatest idols, Pierre Boulez, who, besides being a composer of great merit, was also a renowned conductor. Kevin is the assistant conductor of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra and the music director of the Alabama Symphony Youth Orchestra. He is the founder of the Michigan-based contemporary music ensemble Apex Contemporary Performance, and he has seen substantial success as a conductor of orchestras, opera companies, and other arts organizations nationwide. Kevin has had the distinct pleasure of being able to conduct several pieces by Pierre Boulez, and in just a moment, you'll be able to learn a lot more about Boulez himself, as well as Kevin's connection with him. This is The Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar. And this is episode number 54, The Magical Musical Career of Pierre Boulez, with Kevin Fitzgerald. Well, welcome, Kevin, to the Composer Chronicles. How are you doing today? Having a great one. Thank you. Calling in from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Nice. Shout out to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go Blue! (laughs) Well, you are a bit of a different guest than we normally have. Normally, we have uh, composers uh, from all around the world. And uh, today, we have a conductor on the podcast so why don't you <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about your your journey to becoming the conductor you are and uh and let's go from there awesome sure well um i'm actually uh, visiting my family so i'm home in ann arbor area michigan uh, not ann arbor proper but just right outside i grew up here um and i had no music background until i was 11 when i started in school band and I didn't want to do gym. So that's why I did band. (laughs) So I had no prior interest really. And I immediately, I mean, it's so cliche, but I immediately fell in love with it and started practicing um, religiously and getting super into music and learning everything I could about it. And it was uh, 
ended up going to Interlochen Arts Academy uh, to study there. And I was, I'm a trumpet player, by the way, just like you. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I studied Interlochen and that's where I started kind of getting the conducting bug. And actually my first performances were there. Mm. Uh, and then I went up to the Easton School of Music where I studied trumpet but and music theory. Uh, mm. thank, thank, thank God for that, actually. <laughs> um, but um, And I get a lot of conducting there. I would say it was an unofficial minor in conducting. Hmm. Um, and then I went to University of Michigan for my master's degree uh, and studied orchestral conducting there. So I was back at home, kind of, uh, hence the go blue. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I kind of had a long, uh, right after I started, I finished my master's, I started Apex Contemporary Performance, which is my uh, own organization, which we uh, played the music of underrepresented and um, underperformed composers okay. in, in Michigan. Um, so that covers, you know, people from the BIPOC community, um, people that, you know, need more opportunities and who need a platform for their music, but also composers like who we're going to speak about today, Pierre Boulez, who, mm -hmm. although they are super well known and famous, uh, or infamous, depending how you look at it, um, <laughs> they, their music doesn't get played a whole lot, mainly because of the complexity. So, and the difficulty right. involved. So we've done, you know, Hans Abrahamson, Unsuk Chin, uh, Ashley Fuhrer. I mean, just to name a few composers that we, we like to mix them all together, those two groups. Um, yeah, and then a lot of stuff happened, and I uh, got an assistant conductor job at the Alabama Symphony Orchestra in Birmingham, Alabama, and I've had that position since 2018. Um, and I continue to guest conduct, and uh, my focus is contemporary music and working with living composers or recent, you know, uh, I don't want to say recently deceased. That's a little morbid, but you know, composers that reflect more the more of the vibe of the last fifty years. You know? Yeah, yeah, that makes so, total sense. Yeah, and um, just doing my thing. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's that's fantastic. And yes, you did mention that today's episode is about Pierre Boulez. Uh, you have mentioned several times that uh, Pierre Boulez is one of your heroes and somebody you really look up to. Why is that? How much time you got? <laughs> um, where do I start with Boulez? Well, my first thing I will say about him, the reason I look up to him is that he is such an outstanding musician in the most um, concrete sense. His ear is unparalleled. Uh, uh, it's a very storied and uh, often controversial topic because he's you know said a lot of things to musicians that no one else can say and done a lot of things that no one else can do really? um let's like like what oh well he's he's known for his when he did the peleus and Elizond at the at the covent garden mm -hmm. uh, with the bbc one of his first main conducting posts um they started the tuning process and he immediately told them to stop and he, he tuned each player oh wow yeah yeah that's something yeah. that you could never do today with the climate of orchestras, but he, you know, he, he has an amazing memory for pitch and amazing ear for pitch and has an amazing training, the French training. Um, and even by those standards, he was freakishly good. So, you know, you can watch him rehearsing the Vienna Phil and he's with, you know, very great pieces or, or his own notation for orchestra and he's correcting the notes and these super crazy textures. And, mm. you know, he's just known for that. Um, also, another thing I love about him uh, is how he is always challenging the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, he was very much an iconoclast and a very controversial and outspoken figure about this standard orchestral and operatic system. 
that exists and how limiting it is for the progression of the musical art form. Okay. Uh, I mean, he started writing about that in the fifties, uh, mm. but he kind of kept beating that drum all the way through. I mean, he didn't beat that drum so loudly when he started getting really huge fees for his <laughs> conducting. But earlier on, I, you know, he, he, he felt a lot of uh, frustration, I think about the limits that, uh, especially the, the American symphony orchestra system places on, you know, rehearsal lengths and numbers of rehearsals per cycle or, you know, how many services you can have in a week, these things that he thought were limiting. So, right. you know, he was always, you know, pushing that agenda. And then I just love how he was not only an advocate for his own music and continued to compose throughout his entire international career as a conductor, but he, you know, really promoted new music and brought some of the most avant-garde compositions to very conservative places and very conservative, conservative audiences. Yeah. Um, and I think that he made a lot of repertoire much more mainstream and much, or maybe not mainstream, but at least kind of to be expected, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think specifically the works of Olivier Messiaen, like his later works, especially orchestras were not playing that stuff, you know? And now I yeah. think you're gonna see those pieces, you know, especially like at Expecto and the City on High and um, Chronochromine, Sorry, I mispronounced it. Chronochromy. Uh, these pieces <laughs> that no one really played in a symphony orchestra setting. Uh, he he recorded them uh, with Cleveland and several other groups and programmed them a lot. So, I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, he was just such a, he wasn't just a doer. He was a real thinker and a real uh, force for change uh, right. in terms of kind of breaking out of the conservative programming norms of American concert life. Yeah. Yeah, I it's it's very interesting. When we first started talking, and I wanted to bring you on, and uh, you had mentioned uh, the idea of uh, conductors who are composers as well, um, and it's it's so interesting to think about because Pierre Boulez uh, was somebody who, in my personal mind, was more of a conductor than he was a composer. Um, at least when I was originally introduced. And of course, as I, I grew to be a more well-rounded musician and historian, I of course grew to knew that. But uh, what do you think? Do you, do you find that people gravitate towards one side or the other of his career more than the other? Well, he's definitely much more known for being a conductor only because of the fact that he conducted his conducting career brought him to the like highest echelons of the music world. Mm. Uh, he's conducting the biggest American orchestras. I mean, he's one of the few people who's been music director of the New York Philharmonic, for example. Right. Um, he's conducted all the major American orchestras, all the major European orchestras. So just in terms of like, where does his face show up and in what yeah. context, you know, on album covers, on concert posters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think if you talk to more composers who are like in the, especially for who have European backgrounds or who are in more of the post-tonal style, right. they might think of him only as a composer um, mm. or they might, you know, um, so his repertoire that he, you know, I just mentioned how he programmed a lot of, you know, more on the avant-garde side, but he also conducted a lot of more traditional repertoire. Like we talked about, he's known for his Mahler recordings and his Bruckner right. recordings as well. So I think he was able to kind of diversify his brand. If you're talking in 2021 terms, he wasn't just a new music guy. He wasn't just a French guy. Yeah, uh, he he had a lot to offer 
Um, and yeah, his music is very much not part of the vernacular of the repertoire because of its extreme virtuosity. Yeah. Um, and often his, you know, one of his biggest criticisms of the symphony orchestra that he talks about in his book or uh, orientations is um, how rigid the instrumental uh, forces must be in an orchestra. He mm -hmm. very rarely wrote for a full symphony orchestra. It was usually some kind of ensemble. Like if you look at Ensemble in the Contemporain, 31 musicians, most of his compositions could be played by, by EIC. So like this idea of, well, an orchestra is 10 firsts and 10 seconds and eight violas, like he just didn't think that that was necessary. Um, mm. And so I think a lot of, you know, he does have some pieces for full orchestra, mainly his notation, which were orchestra pieces, uh, sorry, piano pieces that he redid for orchestra. But even at that point, he was thinking of the modern American symphony orchestra, Chicago Symphony Commission, that. So, you know, even though he was writing in, you know, nine and 10 divisi for mm -hmm. the strings, um, he was still kind of thinking of that each person's a soloist kind of texture. Right. Um, right. So, I don't want to say people don't know because they're ignorant. I just think that it would be harder to kind of stumble upon Boulez's music at an orchestra concert or he didn't write any operas. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about where do people find out about new composers, you know, right. he's not mm -hmm. showing up in those places unless there's some specific event in the, in the especially uh, in the years following his death, there were a lot of Boulez uh, retrospective concerts and a lot of orchestras were putting on shows. Yeah. Um, but the music is intimidating. Yeah, and um, <laughs> it's not something that I think maybe all audience members would understand on at the first go. Yeah, um, but anyway, we can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting to think about because I mean, like you said, he doesn't really write anything for a large orchestra, uh, and s some of the things that I have heard are don't necessarily fit within. Um, like like a chamber kind of ensemble. I mean, you exactly. can. It, it, so it kind of sits there in the middle of who who can play this, and unless we just cut down our orchestra a lot or we add more musicians to our our chamber group, where where are we going to be able to play this music? And uh, I think it takes a lot of innovation and thinking and. Uh, ensembles that are already outside of the box to play Boulez's music. And unfortunately, I think uh, because they uh, those kind of ensembles are not within the mainstream, Boulez's music also falls within within that problem as well. Um, so yeah, I I wish more people listen to, to Boulez's music, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's the problem that we face with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I think it's becoming more and more I'll just say this, more and more conductors that I would say are not new music specialists mm -hmm. are programming Boulez or are even exploring their, his music. Um, one of the things that I think makes Boulez more accessible and actually in some ways is that because his knowledge of the, the, the canon, the repertoire that came before him is so, so sophisticated because of his level of interaction with it. That's yeah. the thing that really I think makes him so different than other composers is that he, was performing the music of the people that came before him in right. such an intense way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that his scores, even though they're complex and have a lot going on, there's a way that they read kind of within the, the notational 
especially his later works, the notational norms. They read much more within the notational norms than say John Cage or composers who said, I'm gonna get different sounds by writing in a different notation. Mm-hmm. He was doing innovation through notational norms. Now there are some specific specific things we can get into about what makes his notation different or how he writes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to generalize because his, his writing style changed so much over the course of his oeuvre. But um, I would say that, you know, especially something like um, the notations for orchestra, you know, any conductor with their salt can pick that up and probably figure it out. It doesn't mean you're going to have the, you know, the greatest possible uh, result, but you don't have to be necessarily a quote unquote new music specialist. I think that there's something universal about how he writes right? Um, that allows anyone with a good training in music and the patience to go through it, um, the tools to decode it and make sense of it. Yeah. For those who have never really listened to Belez's music, we're talking a lot about it, but how, how would you kind of describe it? It's a hard question. (laughs) It's a hard question. Well, I'll I'll give you this. So Boulez on many occasions referred to his music as a synthesis of Webern and Debussy. Okay. That was his answer. Mm. So um, Webern, you know, the, the, the youngest student of, uh, of Schoenberg, he really took serialism to the most abstract place. Yeah. Um, it was still extremely ordered, but it was more based on range and timbre. And he was, you know, using serialism in every aspect of the music, mm-hmm. which is something that Boulez definitely did. And especially in the earlier stages with the structures, um, one and two. Um, so I would say that there is this colorfulness, and whimsy and freedom mm-hmm. in his music that you might associate with Debussy and Ravel. Yeah. And then there is, of course, this very rigid structure and, you know, 12 tone music right. um, that you would hear in Webern. Um, when I was in Switzerland at the Lucerne Festival Academy and we were doing uh, a class with, he, Belez, unfortunately, was not able to be there, but he it originally was, but he was too ill. Mm. Um, Matthias Pincher, uh, the next best thing, was who runs Ensemble into Contemporary now, his protege, um, was the teacher. But we had got to go to the Paul Soccer Foundation in Basel okay. and go underground into this James Bond-like vault and see Belez's sketches. Oh, wow. And when you look at the pages and pages of sketches of matrices and different... Um, he was very interested in like pitch multiplication, which even it's kind of beyond my theory knowledge, but you take a set or a row and then you, you get the other resulting pitches based on like a, each pitch gets, you know, goes through an interval multiplication. So you'll do like a minor second and then, a, and then I don't really know how it works. <laughs> to be honest with you, I'd have to go back and read, but um, the, the theorists that were working with us knew how it worked. And I mean, it's just so much thought goes behind the, the getting the raw material. Yeah, But the beautiful thing about Boulez, in my view, is that he's always thinking about the aesthetic at the end of the day. So yeah. he's he's using that raw material, but he's not just like giving you a math problem on a piece. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about the feel and the pacing and the affect. You know, you look at Boulez's scores, especially like the later pieces like um, uh, Derive 2 and Sohancis, there's so many descriptive adjectives all over the place about how the music should be played. Um, He's very detailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my one of my uh, favorites, and I cannot remember the French word, but it translates um, 
uh, it's so fun to say. I just I wish I could remember it. Um, <laughs> it's to tear, to rip away. Okay. And that's what he says for the last chord in Derive 2. Um, so the music is very evocative. I know that that is a word that gets kind of thrown around a lot, but when I'm listening to him, I always kind of know the vibe that he's going for. Yeah. You know, you can always put words to it. It's so, it is abstract, but it's not so abstract. I feel like, you know, he talks about pure expression a lot in some of his interviews. And I think that, you know, the compositional process of saying, okay, I want to describe, I want my music to be mysterious. You Mm -hmm. know, if you give him a word, I feel like he could, even within his rigid system, create a mysterious sounding thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I, oh, I think absolutely. it goes back to his roots with Mallarmé and the poetry yeah. and, you know, Debussy and Mallarmé and that through line and this idea of impressions, making an impression of something, you know, yeah. um, using words and certain types of implications. You know, it's not angry, obvious. <laughs> it's like the impression <laughs> of that, you know, yeah. or whatever the idea may be. So it's extremely evocative, and his music goes from the whole emotional spectrum to, or I should say, expressive, because it might not be all about emotions the way romantic composers were. He hated that, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but expression of low energy or peacefulness, all the way to complete frenzy and out of yeah. you know, um, you know, in a ballistic kind of way. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't think Boulez is enjoyable if you're listening to it in a passive way. Yeah. I think you have to really submerge yourself. And beyond that, I think that one thing that connects him to his conducting is that his, his music has a physicality to it. Mm-hmm. Like when you watch people play Boulez's music, it makes more sense. Yeah. I was when just you thinking just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that comes into his conducting because you know, he's a huge fan of virtuosity and he talks about how he he likes the conductor to have virtuosity too. And there's a lots of things that are hard for the conductor in his music. Um, and there's a certain idea of kind of kinetic energy in his music where like, you know, things are still and then they're moving. Mm-hmm. And this kind of play of motions, you know, yeah. I think that that's definitely something that influences him. And if you want to get into Belez, start with watching. Start with watching because I think that it's much more entertaining and kind of um, it just makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree with that because the first time I found out that Blues was a composer, uh, I just went and I went on his uh, to find a, a recording and I only listened to it and I don't remember exactly how old I was. It was probably I was probably still in my undergrad and I was like, oh, I don't want to listen to this. This is. It's boring. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the first time I actually saw it in concert, um, I remember uh, an ensemble that I went to go see um, while I was, when I first moved here to Philadelphia, was performing a Boulez piece. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much more enjoyable. You have to experience this composer's music. You have to be present. You have to, you have to see it. it it's, it's an experience that you have to be present for. You can't just put it on a recording you can't just pull it up on your phone like i did on my walk yesterday <laughs> and, yeah. I was, and i did that because i was preparing myself for for this co- this talk today but if you truly want to enjoy Boulez, you can't just put it on and then just walk away from it um yeah so i would say I, at first i mean maybe you can kind of drift in and out of it when you get more familiar with it but right. i remember one time i was on a flight and i put on uh, an album 
and I fell asleep and I kind of had this like weird, like, like latent sleep where I was like kind of in and out of consciousness listening to it. And that was kind of fun, but yeah, definitely a first get used, get, get used to it by just kind of, and go with the shorter pieces. You know, he has a lot of short pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, start with the piano music, especially. I think a lot of that is really fun to experience. Um, and yeah, go from there. Absolutely. I will get a chance to talk to you about some of um, some of those pieces a little bit later. Um, but uh, before I actually get there, I want to ask you uh, what you think Boulez's career has had. Uh, I, I'm going to start with um, his conducting career. Um, what do you think Boulez's conducting career has had on uh, today's conductors? Oh, well, I think he was a complete game changer in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the antithesis of, or he was a complete foil to someone like Leonard Bernstein, mm-hmm. who was all about, frankly, melodramatic and over-the-top emotional expression. Um, anything nostalgic, Boulez was not about. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe some of his writings were a little more pointed than his actual feelings. Um but that's another conversation. But I think he compl- he separated this idea that you have to be a verklempt, strumendrong, emotionally uh, emotionally unstable person. This kind of you know that like maestro kind of uh, idea. He he completely went against that. He didn't use a baton. His mm-hmm. gestures are very economical. He created a new language for conducting that I I use. Many others use. Um, whether we're copying him or not, there is kind of a more or less um, technique that is used more for contemporary music that I think he totally bothered. Um, And then I think this idea that a conductor can just go their whole career and not conduct Beethoven, Mozart, and Haydn. Yeah. You know, I think the earliest thing he wanted to program with the New York Film was Schumann. Yeah. Uh, And he refused to conduct Brahms. So, you know, this idea that you can you can say no and like you yeah. don't have to you can create your own repertoire and you don't have to be a jack of all trades you can specialize yeah. um, and I think he was just a real class act you know mm-hmm. and I, I mean he was very private about his personal life and there's not much that people know but mm-hmm. he was always punctual polite unless he was reading your music and by yeah. reading I mean like drag race style reading. <laughs> Right. Um, and you know, he was, he, I never met the guy, but everything I've read about him, I've read pretty much every book there is about him. And, mm-hmm. uh, he was just very intellectual and polite and mm-hmm. focused on the work disciplined. You know, they say he slept on a little cot that wasn't comfortable at all. And he barely slept and he basically studied all the time. So whether wow. that's actually true or that's just a kind of a picture of this monastic life that he apparently led, I'm not sure, but yeah. I like to believe, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. Um, yeah, and maybe maybe I needed to keep this idea of him kind of being that way. But um, you know, he never had any public scandal. Like he never had any. There's no. He was never married. There's speculation about his private life, but he never had like a public relationship. Yeah. He was just kind of. His perception was that he was all about the, the work. So I think yeah. that was kind of an interesting thing. He also just set this unprecedented standard for like. Your, what, what a conductor's ear should be like, mm-hmm. you know, because after him, we all have something to live up to or measure ourselves against, you know? Of course, yeah. So I think there's that for sure.
What would a world without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle, to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite, and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiancé. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash thecomposerchronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. Hey there, it's me, your host, Steven. Aside from being a host of this podcast, I am the founder of Alexandrian Media, a growing production company based in Philadelphia that aims to make art and culture accessible to those in our modern era. I'm here today to tell you about an incredible opportunity. Alexandrian Media is a proud partner of Run the Town, a virtual race hosted by Roy Belzer Fitness. If you're someone who is normally quite active, but haven't been able to get out there and run races or done any fitness related activities or sports, then this is a perfect opportunity for you. Run the Town is a virtual race that can be done anywhere in the world. This fundraiser will aid in bolstering the Roy Belzer Fitness Scholarship Program, benefiting all those that are looking to pursue their fitness journey to feel better and to live a healthier lifestyle, but are financially incapable of getting started. If you're a listener to any of my podcasts, you'll know that I've been a student of Roy's for just about a year now, and I've been a huge supporter of his class. Robusta Fitness has been the best support system I've needed to work on my health. And that's why I'm here to tell you that listeners of this podcast can sign up to run the town for 10% off your choice of three races, a 5k walk slash run, a 10k walk slash run, or a half marathon race. And yes, I did say walk slash run because you do not have to run this race. Join me and let together help Roy Belzer Fitness hit their goal of 1,000 racers across the U.S. and give people looking to jumpstart their health and fitness journeys the chance to get personal training. Click on the link in the show notes to sign up right now. I hope to see you there.
right, so we're going to uh, move on to the actual uh, music that uh, that Pierre Belez wrote. Um, uh, I know you've had a few pieces that you were really uh, that you had mentioned to me um, to that we were potentially going to talk about, um, but I want to know uh, what one of your favorite Belez pieces is. Mm. So many. My all-time favorite is Joachim Cis. Mm. Three pianos, three percussion, and three harps. Wow, that's is quite an instrumentation. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's one of my favorite pieces of any genre, but mm. it is by far my favorite Boulez piece. Um, no matter how many times I listen to it, it still makes me like giggle with delight when I listen to it. Yeah. Um, yes, I just am obsessed with it. Um, and, I, and it's interesting. It's a piece that I have specifically not really i i mean there was there was a chance i was going to perform it in, in, the, in the, the, the recent past but mm -hmm. i'm i'm holding out and i'm waiting because i don't want to get to know it too well because i still want to be intrigued by it i find that when yeah. i really know a piece and i've kind of cracked it in a way it's not that i don't love it it just doesn't have the same mystery to me you know yeah um i've had so, that same experience yeah yeah so i don't want to lose that with so i will listen to it and I will, you know, listen to it a chunk at a time and kind of let my imagination wander. Mm -hmm. And I have a score. It's bound. It's a giant 11 by 17 that I printed <laughs> off, but I haven't, I don't really want to open it. I don't want to like break the seal, so to speak yet. I know I will, but yeah, not yet. I had that actually not with a Belez piece, but uh, I had that same experience when I first discovered, uh, Elgar's Enigma Variations. I was mm -hmm. like, I don't, I don't want to study this piece at all. I want, the, I want this. You want piece. to keep it an enigma? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I, so I to completely understand you not wanting to uh, to crack open that score because it does it loses its magic when you yeah. start when you start to break it apart. Uh, you yeah. you start to see the humanity in it and. You know, you don't want that. Yeah, and, and for me, it's about you take on the a responsibility so that the other people can experience it. You know, mm -hmm. if if I'm doing my job correctly, it's not that I'm not experiencing it when I'm conducting, but I've spent so much time synthesizing the information that it's it's not really I don't want to say a burden, but it is kind of the burden of the performer to give the audience the for that magic, right? Yeah. I'm sure people who are on Broadway who have to do the same show, you know, 500 times in a, in a year mm -hmm. feel the same way. Like it's not the same magic for them every yeah. time, but they have, it's their, it's their duty as artists to bring that. So um, the other favorite is Explosant Fix, okay. um, which is another amazing piece that he revised four times. That's the thing you need to know about Boulez. If you're new to Boulez, he was a avid reviser. Mm -hmm. So many of his pieces are were under revision when he passed away and there are many unfinished pieces. And then he, many of the pieces that we have published that are finished went under many revisions and mm -hmm. Expos on Feeks had four versions of various differences. Wow. Um, one of them being just vibraphone and electronics as the smallest and the biggest mm -hmm. being chamber orchestra with three solo flutes and electronics. Mm. So um, that one I wanted to mention because there's an amazing performance of it with Boulez conducting very late in his life with the Berlin Philharmonic. Okay. Uh, and Emmanuel Pahoud is the flute soloist. Oh, um, wow. 
And I believe Sophie Charest from Ensemble in the Contemporain is one of the other flutists. And I'm not sure who's the other. There are three flutists total. The, mm -hmm. the, the main solo flute and then two flutes that he calls the shadow flutes. Um, okay. That kind of play in an echo of mm -hmm. what the flute plays. Wow. That makes sense. So, and it's this amazing echo effect that is acoustic, not just with your light. It's not, you know, it's so easy to make echo in an electronics. I think he was kind yeah. of like, Mm, at the electronic people because or not electronic people but this idea of electronic manipulation because he's going to do the echo with acoustic instruments mm -hmm. in notation as opposed yeah. to what's an obvious use of, of, of electronics oh we'll just do an echo we'll put a filter on it and it will just kind of da -da -da -da, it'll just like fade out you know yeah. there is some of that with the, with the processing but um definitely check that out Again, the only word I can use is just delightful and surprising. I'm always surprised by Boulez. No matter how many times I've listened to the piece, the timing of the events, that's the thing that sets him apart. Many mm -hmm. composers can come up with a great set of pitches and sonorities. Many composers can come up with the great motives. But the thing that I think sets Boulez apart is that his timing of when we go from one event to the next, mm -hmm. when the form needs to change, just moving from one pitch to the next. Yeah. Um, when to introduce a new pitch. He just has an incredible ear. Sorry, this keeps sliding out. For oh, proportion. Okay. Uh, for proportion, form, I think that's probably his greatest gift is, is, is for form. Um, I, I, he has many short pieces and then a handful of really long pieces like uh is like 40 minutes. Derive 2 is 40 minutes. Crepon hmm. um, is 35 minutes. So he... He has these longer pieces that are maybe forms within forms. So if you're mm -hmm. looking at the whole piece, you might be like, that kind of feels like it goes on. But if you look at it in smaller chunks, at least yeah. to me. Um, so yeah, those are two of my favorites. Why do you think that Boulez was, was constantly revising? I think it probably speaks to two things. His like unwavering perfectionism. Okay. Um, which you can see in his kind of his output as a conductor, you know, everything mm -hmm. is so pristine and perfectly balanced. And some people criticize and say sterile. It doesn't have really uh, a huge uh, emotional uh, component to it. But I also credit, I also also criticize that because I think that some of it, especially his understanding of Debussy and his, the subtlety of the expression, I think yeah. it actually comes through clearer than with a more Wagnerian approach to Debussy, which just makes me want to vomit. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't know him personally. They did tell us, um, you know, that he, at the, at the Soccer Institute, that, you know, he, because his conducting career was so active, there were mm -hmm. long periods where he really didn't compose. So he would, you know, have to stop composing a lot because of his conducting engagements. So I think that had something to do with it. The inconsistency of that compositional time. Mm. Okay. Um, you can kind of see his works. I mean, it's not standardized like this, but kind of showing up in little blobs, you know, like little piles right. um, of time where he had time to compose. And, you know, also maybe because, you know, he has such a knowledge of other pieces, he's just very critical of what, uh, a good piece is. And uh, maybe he thought of, you know, he, he has this famous quote that I'm going to paraphrase about how music is a, is a labyrinth with no beginning and no end. Mm. And maybe he kind of felt like, you know, a piece can never really be done because it can always be refined or like, what if, you know, if you live in the realm of curiosity mm. so much, like what if there was a trumpet here, you know, like 
maybe his imagination was just so strong and his inner ear so good that he kept coming up with new permutations on what he wrote. Also, he would write, you know, I told you about those pages and pages. He had more material. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he did talk about in orientations about how, you know, and I don't know this, the, the details of the system, but, you know, he's trying to resolve the, the process that he's using. Right. And that kept going on and on and on and on because of the method he was using. He was using some kind of uh, mathematic system to drive the pitches forward and it would eventually resolve, mm-hmm. but he needed to go. It took a while or something like that. So again, maybe my, my theory chops need to be stronger on this, but it's pretty <laughs> complex stuff. Yeah. Um, when I was listening to uh, those pieces that you sent me uh, to just listen through, uh, one thing that I act, that crossed my mind several times was, oh my gosh, this sounds so much like Sariaho. Uh, <laughs> I, heard, I heard a lot of influence uh, and I'm sure, I'm not sure which way it was, um, which, which way around it was. I mean, they, they would both be fairly similar in age wouldn't they I, I think so he was born in 25 let me just i think they're a generation apart mm. she was born in 52 oh so, okay so yeah <laughs> then uh, she was I'm... probably influenced by him yeah but i definitely think that um there is a again a emphasis that they share on pure expression you mm-hmm. know um, not necessarily an emotional narrative, but yeah. pure expression of an idea or a concept or, you know, a sound just detached from any labeling or interpretation that you might mm-hmm. put on it. And I think that's one of the things that people miss when they're listening to more um, composers who we call maybe modernist. They're looking for something that isn't there. They're looking for meaning as opposed to, or a narrative. As, um, even though Boulez does call um, Derive to a narrative, a mosaic of narrative, mm. um, uh, or, or a, what is it, a sort of narrative mosaic, that's what he said. Um, okay. But still, it's not like the music is pretty, so everything's good, and then it becomes ugly, and things are bad, and then it becomes pretty again. Like that's if you're listening with that kind of search for a story search i call it stop listening for stop looking for yourself in the music mm-hmm. then you're free because then it's like the the sound space is like a canvas in which you you get to see the and well you don't see it but you hear the events come and go yeah and like you're not as detached so if you listen to it like just the way you would be like oh wow those are three beautiful colors i see on this rothko you know mm-hmm. um Oh, wow. Like that's an amazing sonority. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about Boulez is that I often can't tell the sonority who's playing because yeah. the sonority is so specific. Exactly. And yeah. The ranges of the pitches within the instruments, it, he finds a way to, sometimes it's very clear who's playing mm-hmm. and sometimes it's yeah. very unclear. Yeah. Um, the, they both share, sorry, Aho and Boulez, I think an affinity for ambiguity. That if yeah. you were to try to dictate their music, it would be very difficult because they're not giving you a, a consistent pulse or there's a flexibility as well on the tempo. They both share that. Uh, Boulez yeah. especially has an obsession almost with subtleties and tempo that I think he, he, he feels kind of comes from the Debussy side of it. 
Yeah, that's exactly kind of how I, I felt when I think the biggest things that I saw between the two um, were that ambiguity uh, that, um, like you said, almost you, you you hear the stories, but you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, you don't know if there's a spe- specific instrument that um, that is playing that, but you just you hear something and you, you just can't quite place what mm-hmm. what it is. And that's a, a really special thing in music. I, I, I think it's so it's kind of like putting magic into it, kind of just yeah. Uh, it, I use I, that word all I the time it. to describe Boulez magic. Yeah. It's yeah. Sound magic. I only use that word with one other composer and that's Unsuk Chin. Oh, because really? Because I think she creates sound magic. I think she's a little more on the nose than Boulez mm. uh, in some ways, but um, there is such a heightened level of sophistication in the, in the sound period um, that, yeah, you can it's often hard to tell in the doublings and the orchestration is so sophisticated, I should say. Mm. in the most you know the use of the instruments in like the most pure way i mean i'm using orchestration in the most pure way yeah the, the, the employment of the instruments within the composition yeah so what are some pieces that you think may, may not be some of your favorites but are definite pieces that have kind of had a had an impact in some way well, I think we can start first with um, blanking. I just had the name. Structures one and two. Okay. Uh, his pieces for two pianos. Those were kind of his breakout pieces, where he was really rigid in the in that was where everything was. Every single element of the music was serialized: the rhythm, the pitch, the articulation, mm. uh, and the dynamic. And he kind of picked up from Messian's piece um, something of some blank of various of variable pitches and rhythms it's a it's another piece for piano um and it's very similar in its its vibe mm. uh, he had an interesting relationship with Messi, and maybe we can get to that later but um <laughs> i think that that just kind of again you're asking about like what composers take away i would say that it, it's a very hard piece to listen to it's not really enjoyable mm-hmm. um but it, it it's kind of like um a snapshot in compositional development, like a historical snapshot, if you will. It's right. something that every music history class covers if you're going to do 20th century music. Mm-hmm. Especially Structures 1A, that's the the, the, the famous one that usually shows, shows up on listening. Um, <clears throat> let's see. There is this incredible hardness that people associate with Belez, harshness that you would get from 1A, but then there's this other like the Debussy side, this mm-hmm. softness, this roundness, this freeness. Mm-hmm. Freeness is one of the words that Boulez uses the most when he's talking about the music of his he loves. That's what he says about Sochancis, is that it's his favorite piece, um, or his most important work, because it's the most free. Yeah. Um, so one thing people don't really realize is that even though Boulez is very structured with pitch, he actually has a lot of aleatory in his music, a lot of uh, very flexible time. Uh, time. Time meaning the tempo is very flexible. A lot of kind of um, Cajun ideas, where you know you hold a you hold a sonority, and then someone has to kind of improv during that sonority. Mm. Um, and I just immediately think back to his improvisations one and two on Mallarmé for percussion ensemble and soprano. Yeah which I had the pleasure of actually conducting 
I did the first one twice and the second one once uh, with uh, Dr. Amy Petrangeli, who's at the Baylor School of Music now, teaching voice down in Texas. Amazing artist. You guys should check her out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we did that at University of Michigan with the percussion ensemble there. So another shout out to Dr. Joe Gramley, who is, um, actually, I don't think he has a doctorate. Joe Gramley, he's down at Indiana, Indiana University now teaching percussion, but All he gave right. us this opportunity to do these Boulez pieces. Um, and in those pieces, it's very free much of the time. There are lots of fermatas and aleatory happening in the percussion, lots of the tempo. He uses arrows to indicate the changes in tempo. Okay. So you're going, let's say, 60, and then there's a little fluctuation forward and then a little fluctuation back. Like these things that we would probably in romantic music call rubato, mm. he's notating that. And instead of using hyper-complex rhythms, uh, I would say compared to maybe some of his, uh, um, I'm to say colleagues, but maybe just people like Stockhausen or Zanakis or people that he kind of came up with, mm. um, he, he, he chose, I think, to alter the time more than the rhythms so mm -hmm. you know it's not like you know warning where you have a five or a six or for a seven or an over a nine or you know you have to you know or ferny how with the, the nested tuplets and things it's more uh like i said it's kind of more in the rotational zeitgeist that we're used to but yeah. the complexity in the ambiguity comes from a lot of tempo fluctuations okay um, which i think connects to his conducting because i think i can almost imagine him using you know gesturing with his conducting to kind of feel the flow of a line and there's right. this elasticity that his music has that you rarely find in contemporary music you rarely find music that is elastic it's right. usually very strict right because the composer is trying to control how the musicians play it right so uh i would say I, I don't know how many composers have been directly influenced by that because frankly a lot of the composers i know aren't super into blues but no. um I think if you were if you were to ask maybe someone like Nina Senk or definitely Matthias Pincher who studied yeah. with Boulez, their music has some of that flexibility into it as well. Wonderful. Um, before you mentioned uh, the uh, Boulez and Messiaen's uh, relationship with each other, you care to uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Well, again, I wasn't their friend. I didn't know. I didn't know the T at the time. But you know, at first, Boulez worshipped Messiaen. He loved uh -huh. him. He was in his private class outside of the conservatoire. And then, you know, Messiaen was such a radical that the, the school wouldn't give him a position. They let him teach a course in analysis that mm. he took, that Boulez took. And then he actually, once he won his first prize, he got a little cocky, and he 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 refused to take the the prescribed professor's class on mm. counterpoint he said like i'm above this this is you know forget this guy and he started a petition to get messian to be on faculty full-time at the conservatoire and i don't think oh, wow. it worked out but he he tried uh and they were they were close um unfortunately you know Boulez has a sharp tongue and he <laughs> He was very critical of anything nostalgic or backward looking or neo-romantic or, um, and he felt that um, the Toronto Leela Symphony was, he said it made him vomit. <laughs> um, which if you don't believe me, it shows up in his, um, the Guardian, his, his, his obituary in the Guardian. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and you know, of all the Belez pieces he's conducted and performed, he's never performed or conducted 
Well, he's ever recorded Trongalila, and I can find no record that he ever conducted Trongalila. Wow. Myung yeah. Chung basically did that for him and, <laughs> and championed the piece. But when he came out against Trongalila, they had a falling out for five or six years, and I'm not sure quite when they they patched things up, but they did, according to what I've read. And um, <laughs> he's went on to you know conduct many of his pieces um, and record many of his pieces, mainly his later pieces. But you have to remember too, like Boulez was in started at the conservatoire in 44. The Tronglila was written in 49. You know, which college kid didn't have outrageous opinions that he now looks back on and says, like, I don't think that anymore, you know? Yeah. Right. So like when I was in high school, I told my theory teacher that I thought Brahms was boring. Now I would never say such a thing, you know, because I don't <laughs> think Brahms is boring. But yeah. Um Maybe he was so radical about that when he couldn't go back on his word. Hmm. But um, if anyone knows of a recording or a performance of Boulez doing Prong Lima, please hit me up on Instagram <laughs> and let me know because I would love to know about that. Do it. <laughs> yes. You um, know, Messian supported him a lot. So I think he felt yeah. like he owed him a bit. But, I, you know, I also think that, you know, the, the, the hangover from the Wagnerian style that yeah. was still present in, in Parisian concert life. I think, uh, I think some of that was still hanging around Messian's head. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything about Pierre Boulez that you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet already? Well, one thing I kind of, res- well, first of all, Pierre Boulez and I have the same birthday. Oh, really? Yes. Six, <laughs> 66 years apart. We have the same birthday. Oh, wow. And, you know, I am obviously not claiming I'm like the reincarnation or like I have any connection to him, but there are a lot of um, mid airy season conductors and artists and composers, uh, Celine Dion, Bach. Um, there are so many others I'm completely forgetting right now, but like mm. if you look at like late March, early April, the amount mm. of like people that are there is pretty crazy. And I just kind of love his childhood because, you know, he did study piano from an early age, but he was at, from age seven, he was at this Catholic school Mm. and uh, the school days were 13 hours long. And of course they, you know, the French, they're very hardcore about their training of any kind. And his dad was an engineer and he wanted his son to, you know, get a math training. And he, so he, he, they had to fight against his dad a lot to even get to audition. Mm. And the first time he, um, He's from Eastern France. So first time he got to audition for the conservatoire in Lyon, he actually was rejected. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was two more years that he needed to to go to Paris and enter the class there. But I love how some you know someone had a rejection early on. It wasn't like he came from musical parents who were pushing this. They were actually trying to talk him out of it, similar to Stravinsky's parents who wanted him to be a lawyer. Right. So I kind of relate to that because my parents, even though they definitely encouraged me as a musician, they weren't musicians and didn't really know maybe how to set me up for that. But they did, looking back, they did a great job. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that because he did have kind of a, a climb to stardom, but it wasn't the traditional, like, oh, he's a prodigy, so let's put him on the stage. He wasn't Baron Boyne, who was a prodigious pianist, who, by the way, they were very good friends and had a nice long collaboration. And now someone like Baron Boyne, who's kind of the champion of the Germanic repertoire. He does Boulez all the time now. He conducts wow. Boulez. So um, I think it's kind of an homage as well. But um, my point being, I don't think he had a, tra- for someone of his stature in the, the the storied history of music, I don't think he has this traditional background, um, mm-hmm. 
which I kind of love and relate to. Yeah. And he experienced, you know, he had to, you know, he, when he was um, first starting off out in Paris, he had to, you know, conduct at a theater, a little theater, and he had to arrange and write incidental music for whatever they were working on. And I wish we could hear those scores, but they're, we don't, we don't have them, <laughs> but you know, he kind of was scrappy in a way he like had his, and then, you know, he was conducting in this kind of shabby theater and, you know, it wasn't a super glamorous job. Yeah. Uh, and then he um, went on to start the Domain Musicale, which was kind of like, I kind of feel like that's kind of what I did with Apex, like an outlet for my for my creativity and my art um, that I, what, I, I, I didn't have an opportunity. So I just made one, you know, right. I kind of have modeled myself after him that way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would just say, uh, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, especially composers, you know, American composers have a very poor knowledge of European avant-garde composers, I think. Yeah. Uh, and they deserve a lot of respect. So yes. I would, uh, maybe put down your, uh, postmodernist scores that you're studying and <laughs> put down your Crigliano, nothing, no shade, but, you know, <laughs> pick up some Boulez and look at his notation and his writing, you know, for someone who, I think one thing I'll, I'll end on is, is that he, I think he was able to write so effectively because he knew what notations worked and didn't work from conducting. Mm -hmm. and yeah. He's so involved in the throes of what, what happens when you conduct an orchestra and this is written, how do they play it? You know? Yeah. And he was able to figure out what notations do work and don't work. And he was able to take risks because he had enough practical knowledge that, Oh, if I write this, you know, he would even be so specific as to say, like, you hold a fermata with the right hand and then you cue with the left hand, you know, these kind of more uh, specific to the conductor ideas. He could think in the, he could think on those terms because he is a, such a good conductor, you know? Yeah. So just, you know, not just composers, but like anybody, if you haven't really taken the time to maybe look into his music and actually, I think it's really beautiful to look at his music, not to yeah. listen to it. The scores are beautifully done. Um, and I think it, it, it looks so ordered. Yeah. Right? So Absolutely. if you're listening to this and you're like, this sounds cacophonous, like maybe look <laughs> at the score. And there are actually a lot of his scores on Issue, Issue, uh, okay. the, the document sharing website. And obviously yeah. you can order them from a universal edition as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, do you have anything to plug uh, for yourself? Um, oh, uh, well, you can find me on Instagram at Conductor Kfitz, Conductor K-F-I-T-Z. And you can follow me there. You can also follow my organization, Apex, uh, at Apex, A-E-P-E-X, C-P for contemporary performance, Apex C-P at uh, Instagram as well. And then my personal website, if you want to check that out, is KevinFitzgeraldConductor.com. Wonderful. And all of those links will be in the show notes so everybody can go and uh, follow you and, and follow Apex and and little, learn more and support you and, and everything you do. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the Composer Chronicles today to share your vast knowledge on the, on Pierre Boulez. Well, there's always more to learn, and I'm just glad I'm able to know enough to talk about it. So thanks for having <laughs> me. It's been awesome. This episode of the Composer Chronicles was edited by me, Stephen Shigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. Find Kevin on social media and keep up to date with his upcoming engagements via the links found in the show notes. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. If you would like to listen to the pieces discussed in this episode, you can find it on the Composer Chronicles of Spotify playlist. Click on the link in the show notes or go to Spotify and type in the Composer Chronicles into the search bar. You can find the Composer Chronicles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. When you follow the show on any of those platforms, you'll be kept up to date on all of the latest news. Next week, it's a story of another conductor-composer, Gustav Mahler. Mahler's career as an opera conductor collided with his budding career as a composer of symphonies when he sat down to write his symphony number no. 2, Resurrection, turning the genre of the symphony completely on its head and showing the world that the old ways are not quite dead, just transformed. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey there, Chroniclers. If you love the episode, then you are going to love the upcoming Patreon content. Members of the Revelian and Wagnerian tiers on the Patreon page will get access to the full-length video version of this episode in the upcoming week. If you want to watch this full episode containing extra conversation not heard on the podcast, just sign up at patreon.com slash the Composer Chronicles at the $5 Revelian tier or the $10 Wagnerian tier. The video will be up as soon as possible, so sign up to get your notification when it drops. See you there. Alexandrian Media, art and culture for the modern era.